Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Great to see all of you here this morning. Hello to those of you at the South Campus, West Campus, Converge Hive, and on the internet as well. Thank you so much for choosing to be with us as we worship together as a church family. Uh, I wanted to go ahead and give you a quick heads up. Guys, Valentine's Day is coming. I know she said she doesn't want anything. She's lying. All right? It's okay. Forgive her of those sins and go ahead and treat her special the way that she deserves to be treated. But you, my friend, have been forewarned. Don't miss that opportunity. Uh, thinking about Valentine's Day got me thinking about that uh, great Protestant uh, theologian who said, if tomorrow never comes, will she know how much you love her? <laughs> Did you try in every way to show her every day that she's your only one? And if your time on earth were through, and she must face this world without you, was the love you gave her in the past going to be enough to last? Say it with me, if tomorrow never comes. You know, there's a, there's a lot of pressure when you think about it that way. When you think about, oh my goodness, you know, if this is the last Valentine's Day, is that, did I, did I show enough love to her? You know, is that gonna be enough to last? When we think about those kind of situations that we need to, to say the right things and we need to do the right things so that they know how much our significant other means, uh, because Really, we don't know if tomorrow will ever come. Not, none of us ever know that. And the unfortunate situation is so often when we know we don't have tomorrow, it's too late. And we find ourselves in a situation where we haven't said the most important things to the most important people in our lives. And that's why Garth Brooks encourages us to live as if tomorrow never comes. He's so spiritual, I'm telling you. You're like, how do you come up with these messages, Cody? I don't know if they're spirit-inspired. No, they're country music-inspired. But there's a lot of pressure. And we've got to remember, though, that our, our tomorrow isn't, isn't promised to us always. James teaches us that we are but a, a breath, a mist. Today we're here, tomorrow we're gone. And it encourages us to say the most important things to the most important people. Because when we realize that our tomorrow never comes and we're squeezed for that moment, squeezed in that time, we, our, our hearts are revealed. And when we know that time is coming, we set aside specific times to say the most important things to the most important people. And I've had that opportunity of being around people that know that their moments are their last here on earth. And they do their best to say the most important things the most important people. It reminded me of those opportunities that some people have gotten to say those important things to the people that they loved. And I was thinking about those folks that were a part of that 9-11 tragedy, who knew that something was going wrong. And at that very moment, when they realized that their tomorrow might not come, they said the most important things to the most important people. I got some transcripts of some things that people said uh, during that time, one person said, something terrible is happening. I don't think I'm gonna make it. I love you, take care of the children. Saying the most important thing to the most important person. Another one said, I love you. 
I'm in the World Trade Center and the building was hit by something. I don't know if I'm gonna get out, but I love you very much. I hope I see you later, bye. The passenger on flight uh, 175 said, I'm on a plane and it's hijacked and it doesn't look good. I just wanted to let you know that I love you and I hope to see you again. You know, when we doubt that our tomorrow is coming, we say the most important things to the most important people. And Jesus was no different. He's always said the most important things to the most important people, but he specifically did that on the cross. And that's what we're gonna look at this morning. So if you would, please open your Bibles to page 884 if you're opening one of those blue Bibles. If you brought your own, it's Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Uh, we're gonna begin a new series called Seven Words from the Cross. This is gonna be a seven-week series and uh, we're gonna take a couple of breaks for some very special Sundays in between, but this is going to lead us all the way to Easter. And I've called this the seven words from the cross, not because Jesus only spoke seven words from the cross, but because we're gonna look at those different phrases that Jesus spoke from the cross. There's seven different ones, and we're gonna pull out one word that kinda highlights the subject of that phrase, and so that's why I've called it Seven Words from the Cross. And so it, it's gonna be a seven-week series that's gonna lead us all the way to Easter. And so I've been praying that this is the most uh, powerful uh, series that our church has ever experienced. I think it's gonna be a great way for us to prepare our hearts to worship the risen Savior uh, this Easter. But we're gonna look at those uh, seven words. By the way, if you're not in a home group, you need to get in a home group today you're gonna take these seven words and seven phrases way deeper and be able to process them in so many ways because I'm telling you, these phrases are so short and succinct and they seem so simple. And in many ways, they are very simple. But the breadth and depth to which they go, if you truly look into them and spend time with them, they're gonna take your heart and mind to wonderful places that God wants to take them. But we want that to happen in a home group for you so that you can process that with other believers as well. So get in a home group. You can go on online today. Uh, just so you know, as far as these seven phrases, none of them come from a specific gospel. Uh, so this, these seven phrases all come, uh, they're, they're not pulled, I'm, I haven't just proof texted, but they come from different gospels. No gospel has more than three. And so we're, we try to order these in the way that they think they've been ordered. And so we're gonna start at the beginning where Jesus is gonna talk about the subject of forgiveness. And that's why we're going to uh, begin in uh, Luke chapter 23. And so what we're going to do is I want to read the entire text so that you get some context to Luke chapter 23, but then we're going to hone in and focus on just his phrase. And as we will do every week, we're going to dissect that phrase and exposit that phrase. But then at the end, I want to give you some words to live by that are based on Jesus's words from the cross. So Luke chapter 23, we're gonna begin in verse 33 just to give you some context and read through 38. So just follow along with me. It says, and when they came to the, the, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right 
and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And may God bless the reading of his word. So part of what we wanna do through this series is give you the context, which is why I wanted to read around that phrase, the first phrase from the cross, which is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But all of these things, uh, to be very clear, happened on the cross. Jesus is saying all of these things as he was being crucified. So all of these sayings are coming from about a six-hour period, a six-hour time frame where Jesus was on the cross. That was actually very short for someone who was being crucified. Uh, oftentimes, they would hang there much, much longer. But the cross wasn't the beginning of Jesus' suffering. Remember, Jesus has already been kept up for hours on end. He was put on trial through the night, uh, unduly, unfairly, uh, obviously, but he was held up all night. Then he was beaten within an inch of his life, and so he is already very, very, very weak when he is placed on the cross. And when I say placed, I mean nailed to the cross. He is already bleeding. He is already exhausted. He is already weak. And here's why I bring that up is because Oftentimes, the way that people died when they were crucified was not from blood loss or anything like that. It was actually from asphyxiation or suffocation. When their hands were nailed to the cross, their, their whole inside would, would basically just hang. And so it was hard for them to breathe, just to take a single breath. And so in order to breathe, you would have to, because your feet were nailed to the cross, you would have to push yourself up by your feet to be able to take a breath. And so you think about all of the pain that Jesus was experiencing at that time. He's weak, he's been beaten, he's bleeding, he's bruised, he's battered, and in order to take a breath, it's painful to push up on the nail that's driven through his feet just to breathe. And what Jesus decides to do is not just use that time to push up and breathe off his feet, but to push up and speak. He takes the time to speak. Just let that, let that sink in. Oftentimes, people that were crucified, as you can imagine, uh, they weren't in the best of moods, and they would oftentimes uh, curse the people that were standing there and watching them. There is a crowd around that cross, uh, but they were obviously cursing the people that were nailing their hands and feet to the cross, so much so that they would go to extreme measures to make sure that those people lived but did not speak. And I've been told, don't say that because there are kids listening. You can use your imagination. And Jesus decided to not use any words to curse anyone, 
but instead he uses all the energy that he has to not just breathe, but to speak. Because when he knew that his tomorrow wasn't gonna come, he wanted to say the most important things to the most important people. You see, at the time of Jesus' greatest need, he was thinking about your greatest need, and that is forgiveness. The first saying from the cross, the first one that, that frames all the rest of his words is this saying in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as, as I've meditated on this throughout the week, I've just thought, again, I, I wouldn't probably use my words to, to speak that way. Um, and if I were hanging on the cross, I would probably fill in the blank a lot different, a lot differently than Jesus did. Instead of, Father, forgive them, I, you know, I would have said, Father, smite them, you know, uh, uh, kill them, take their life, hurt them the way that they've hurt me. God, be a God of retribution. Father, judge them because they don't know what they're doing. I mean, if people are ignorant of how they are hurting us, how does that make you feel? It makes you feel angry. It makes me feel angry. Where it's like, don't you know what you're doing? Wouldn't you wake up? I mean, this is the time of Jesus' greatest need. All of his disciples have deserted him, which we'll talk about later on in the series. And he's here alone. And as the psalm says, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. He himself being cursed. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Such a powerful statement that at the time of his greatest need, he was thinking about our greatest need, which is forgiveness. You see, every human being's greatest need is to be forgiven of their sins. Your greatest need isn't physical, your greatest need isn't financial, your greatest need isn't emotional, your greatest need is spiritual. Because we all, humankind, have a spiritual problem called sin. It's existed since Genesis chapter three, and it still exists today. We have a sin problem, which means that we are completely depraved. And I wanna talk about that word depraved for just a second because sometimes it gets used out of context. My friend, you and I are completely depraved. And what we oftentimes think about depravity is that we do awful, heinous, terrible things in the dark that no one needs to know about, that no one sees, that, that if it was even spoken of, we would be completely embarrassed and wanna crawl under a rock. And you go, Cody, I'm not, I don't do those things. I'm not, I'm not depraved in that way. Here, here's what depravity means. Depravity, sure, that mean, it means those things. But depravity doesn't just mean all of those things. You can, you can be depraved and still do nice things for people. Depraved people do that all the time. There are depraved people who run charities. Because what depravity means is that there is nothing that you can do to merit favor with a holy God. That's what depravity means. That, you, that there is such a, a gap and expanse between you and a holy God. And the thing that's created that gap is sin. 
And you say, but Cody, I haven't sinned that bad. If you've sinned once, it's that bad to be removed from a holy God. And I think you've all told at least one white lie. Ladies, just as I mentioned at the beginning, you've told your husbands and significant others you didn't want anything for Valentine's Day. Depraved. And guys, you've told plenty of lies. I don't even have to, we don't have to point any of those out. It's just the sweet lady sitting next to you. But if you took, took a moment to think about this, you have sinned. We've all sinned. And because you've sinned, there's no amount of good works that you can do to merit favor to bridge that gap between you, sinful human, and a holy God. It wasn't the way God intended it, but it was the way that you took it. You're depraved. Humans are depraved. We're in a hole that we cannot dig ourselves out of, and you are there. You needed help. And I wanted to be super clear about this idea and this theology, it's not just an idea, it's truth, but I wanted to be super clear about it, so I put this on the sermon notes. I put a gray box on there for you because I want you to understand the depravity and what Jesus says because when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, some of you heard that statement and you thought, how arrogant. How arrogant that Jesus would say that I need forgiveness. How arrogant that he would say, I don't know what I'm doing. Actually, he's not arrogant. He's being gracious. He's being kind to point this out to you. If you look at that gray box and put scriptures here, but God is just and our sin deserves to be punished. God is holy and God is gracious, but God is also just. And he cannot overlook your sin. And if you've sinned once, you have already been removed from a holy God, and everyone has. Romans 3.23, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. We can only have a right relationship with God if he forgives our sin. There's no amount of church attendance, there's no amount of nonprofit volunteer work that you can do, no amount of money that you can give. Nothing can stack up to reaching a holy God. There's a, this analogy that if every good work was a box that you stacked on each other to try to make your way to God, you'll never make it. You'll fall, you'll tumble, and there's no amount of boxes that you can get to reach a holy God, no amount of good works. And forgiveness is only possible through the shedding of blood. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22 tells us that. And if you don't think that's true, and you're like, that, Cody, that's just New Testament, that's, that's made up, go all the way back to the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned, what covers over their sin? Animal skins. Those weren't live animal skins. Those were dead animal skins. Animals had to die. The only way that we can be forgiven of sin is through the shedding of blood. And so forgiveness is offered to everyone once and for all through Jesus Christ. That his blood was shed. His blood is the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 
forgiveness of your sins, forgiveness of my sins, so that, I, that we could be completely absolved of our sins. Our sins could be erased. That's why we sing the worship songs we sing. That's why our worship here will always be celebratory because we celebrate that because of Jesus, we have gone from death to life, that he pulled us out of the hole that we couldn't dig out of, that he solved the problem that we could never solve ourselves, that he paid the price that we would eventually end up paying for eternity in hell. That's something to be celebrated. That's the reason why we worship him. You see, folks, just so you know, Christianity is the only religion, and I know it's a relationship, but it's the only religion that offers anyone complete erase of all of their sins. If you even think about other religions, if it's a reincarnation, when you're reincarnated, you're still paying for sins of your past lifetime. Or your place in heaven is based on heaven or paradise or whatever, is based on your behavior here. Christianity, the price that Christ paid, is the only one that completely says your sins have been wiped clean, removed as far as the east is from the west, never to be dealt with again. Carried to the cross with Christ, dead and buried, never to follow you into eternity, never to touch you again. That's good news. And that's the way Jesus starts off his message from the cross, is saying the most important thing to the most important people, all of those that were around. You see, Jesus from the cross was interceding for those who were ignorant of their need for their sins to be forgiven. Jesus interceded for those who were ignorant of their need to be forgiven for their sins to be forgiven. I just wanna break down and dissect this phrase that he says from the cross because there are some really interesting things uh, about this phrase. Uh, and the first is that he begins it as a prayer. Did you notice that? That the first thing that Jesus says is a prayer, a prayer to the Father. So even in the midst of his pain and his suffering, his relationship with the Father hasn't been severed. And it, it's just a, this is an aside, but a good Monday morning application. Don't lose your prayer life no matter how much you're suffering. Oftentimes that's the first thing to go and it's the last thing we fall back on. And the first thing Jesus does is pray. The first thing that he does is pray to the Father. And the other thing that's interesting about that is, couldn't he have prayed silently? I mean, we pray silently all the time. And he doesn't. He prays out loud so that we know what his heart is. He expresses what that prayer is because he wants us to know what our greatest need was and he wants us to know why he came. And that was to be our sin substitute, which leads to one of the second things. When he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, when he asked the Father to forgive those in the crowd, did you know that's the only time through the New Testament that he prays that the Father would forgive anybody? All, all the rest of the time throughout the New Testament, Jesus is forgiving people. If you go back to Matthew chapter nine, he comes across this par paralytic and he, you know, the, he wants help, he wants healing, and he says, take up your mat, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, hold on there, let me pray to the Father. He says, 
I can forgive you. I'm Jesus. And remember, there's a whole brouhaha about that of how you can't forgive sins. And yes, I'm divine. I can forgive sins. So why doesn't Jesus just forgive them there? It's because you're starting to see that Jesus is, as he hangs on the cross, our sin substitute. He's the one hanging in our place to take on the wrath of a holy God that all of our sin deserves. And so he's praying to the Father, Father, the just Father, the judge, would you forgive them because he is not the forgiver. Now now he is taking on the sin substitute, the Lamb of God who died in our place, the one who will shed his blood for us. And his payment must be sufficient to the Holy Father, to the Holy God. And you see that he's now taking that place. And that's why he says, forgive them. And this forgiveness means to cover over or to wipe away. And that's what he wants to happen to everybody's sin, that it would be, that it would be taken away. And actually, the way that this is phrased is that this isn't the first time that Jesus has said this. It's this continual forgiveness. Forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they do. Forgive them. They don't know what they do. Almost as if every action that when he was turned over for trial, that when he was beaten, that when one nail went in and another nail went in, that every time he's saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. You see, everybody that was around participating in this was ignorant. And ignorant has become like this very demeaning term, and I don't mean it demeaning in any way. I call myself ignorant all the time. But, you know, it just means they don't know. They don't know what, they, what they're doing. And you go, how do they not know what they're doing? Well, they don't know what the repercussions are. They have no idea who he is. Remember, that's why they put the inscription, King of the Jews. They're mocking him and scoffing him. They, they, they don't know that what they are actually doing is trying to squelch the power of God, but all they're doing is putting it in motion. When he says them, who is he talking about them? Well, certainly he's talking about them as far as the Roman soldiers that were there crucifying him. But remember, the crowd is all there as well. So he's talking to the Pharisees, the Pharisees that that didn't want him to have any place in their society. He's talking to all of those people who are mocking him, all those people who are scouting, all those who are looking on. And he's saying, forgive them because they don't know what they do. See, Jesus is interceding for those who are ignorant that their sins need to be forgiven. And we are all ignorant, in a sense, because none of us know how bad our sin is. You see, we think that when we we sin, it's like, ah, it's no big deal. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that girl. Like, it's, it's not that bad. And, and just as I've thought about it this week, what, what, is, what has framed this for me is here's how bad your sin is, that a dad gave up his son to pay for it. I mean, think about, think about what you would give up your child for, to, to pay for. I mean, think about the enormity of, of, of that crime, how, how heinous how, how gruesome that sin would have to be that someone would give up their child to pay for it, that you would give up. You, you wouldn't give that up. 
You wouldn't give up your child for anything in this world. And that's how bad our sin is. You see, we're ignorant to how bad our sin is and we're ignorant to the ramifications and, and, and all of the, the things, the consequences that come along when we sin. We're ignorant thinking, deal? And then it hurts somebody and it hurts somebody else and it hurts somebody else. And it goes on and on and it's so bad that if it's not forgiven, then you pay for it for eternity. Eternity. We're ignorant of how bad our sin is. I am. And that's why Jesus came. Because as arrogant as this might sound, it's actually the most gracious thing that he could say as he sees us as ignorant of have mercy. They don't know what they're doing. You know, it's like you, sometimes when you want to be gracious to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, what do you say? Bless their heart. Bless their heart. You're trying to be gracious and you're trying to be kind because they don't know what they're doing. And as Jesus takes on the sin of the world, he says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, as, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All the things that we didn't know about our sin, how bad it was, how expansive it was, how heavy it was, he laid on him so that he could pay for it in full and absolve us from our sin, removing it, covering it over, burying it in the tomb so that we'd never have to pay for it ever again. And by the way, real fast, ignorance does not equal innocence. Ignorance is negligence, especially if you're hearing this message. You need to know, my friend, that your sins will have to be paid for. You can choose Jesus to pay for it or you can pay for it for eternity. I've been praying for you all week. I plead that you would let him pay for you. And you say, I'm ignorant. No longer. You're not. You know that you've got a problem you couldn't solve yourself and that's why he sent his son to mediate your relationship with a holy God, to bridge that gap. And that's what he was praying for as he prays for not only those who are ignorant, but those who were his enemies on the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And his prayers for sinners' forgiveness didn't end on the cross, but it actually even continues today. You see, Jesus prayed for their forgiveness, and he continues to intercede for us today as our high priest, as our mediator, the one who comes between us and bridges the gap, the gap that we couldn't fill between us as sinful human beings and a holy God. And even after Jesus' resurrection, he continues this ministry to intercede for us, to pray to the Father on your behalf. That's what Romans 8, verse 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
You see, right now, he is alive and he is interceding. He has the ear of the Father. He sits at the right hand of the Father and continues to pray for you, continues to plead for you, continues to say, Lord, please forgive them. They don't, don't know what they're doing. Lord, Lord, open that door for them. That's my child. Lord, we give, them, give them your best. He is continuing to mediate on your behalf continuing to intercede for you today. He is the one that mediated for us there on the cross, our relationship with the holy God, and it continues today as our high priest, the one who goes into the holy tabernacle, the one who goes into a holy God and pleads for his people, who pleads for you and me. And these are words that we need to live by. And so I wanna give you three very quick applications ways that you need to apply these first words from the cross about your forgiveness. And the first one is this, accept Jesus as the sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. Just accept Jesus. My friend, your sins are a weight you cannot bear and they will bury you in hell for eternity unless he carries them away through his sacrifice on the cross. I don't know how much clearer to make it, guys. I mean, this is, this is a very simple message. There's a gift out there Jesus paid for and he's offering you and you have a moment to accept it right now. Don't wait until it's too late because there could come that time where it is too late and you're standing before him face to face, and he says, who's gonna let you in here? Is it based on your good works or Jesus? And you're like, well, I never trusted Jesus. I didn't know anything about that. You're not ignorant anymore. And if you're trying to pay for it yourself, you'll never get in. So today's the day. Accept the free gift of salvation, that you can have a right relationship with God forever through his son, Jesus Christ. Second, confess your sins and trust you have been forgiven. Confess your sins and trust you've been forgiven. Maybe you've made that initial, Lord, I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins, confession to him, and you've begun a relationship with Jesus Christ somewhere in your past. Today, I hope that you have a new understanding. Folks, our sin is offensive to God, and offensive is a polite way of putting that. And we should confess our sins. We should turn from it and run, but confess it so that he can forgive us of our sins. That's what 1 John says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And some of you have sinned in your life and you think that you have to spend the rest of your life paying for it. And today needs to be the day that you need to trust that it's been paid in full. There is a uh, psychologist that said, if my patients only knew that their sins could be forgiven, I know that 70% of them would be cured immediately. That the weight that these people carry as they come into his office a result that they don't know that they can be forgiven of their sins or they're carrying something around that they try to continue to pay for. Confess your sins because he is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Today is the day to lay it down. 
to lay it down at the cross, to not carry it any longer. And then finally, take every need to Jesus who continually intercedes for you. If he interceded for you on the cross, the first thing that he says is forgive them, they know not what they do. Then don't you think that at the time of his greatest need, if he's praying that, that now as he sits at the right hand of the Father, he's not interceding for you? Take every need to him. In Hebrews chapter four, it tells us about Jesus' role as the high priest. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Take every need to the one who interceded for you from the cross for your greatest need. If he's concerned about your greatest need, don't you think he's concerned about your relational needs? your emotional needs, your spiritual needs, financial needs, all those things, wouldn't he be concerned for those? You know, I try to think of what's the best way to close this down? And I think the best way to end this is just to ask you a cheesy but very poignant question. If tomorrow never comes, are your sins forgiven? Would you pray with me? I want to give you an opportunity to confess your sins to him. Maybe you're confessing for the first time and you need to say, God, I've realized the gap between us cannot be bridged by myself. And I accept you as the only way to be made right with the holy God. Or maybe you have other things to confess. Now would you accept his forgiveness? Remember, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Is there a burden that you've been carrying far too long? Today's the day to leave it at his feet. He's paid it in full. Accept his forgiveness. Well, Lord God, I thank you that when you were at your greatest need, you were thinking about our greatest need. That's that we would be forgiven of our sins. I'm certain there can be no greater joy. May we express that with our lives, with our affection, and with our song as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.